0: I
1: don't think I got my note. How, how, you. how high do
2: I need to go? Ice cream. Ice cream, cream. Ice cream. I'll give you all your notes. Start on a note. Are you saying ice cream?
0: Ice yeah. Ice cream ice cream ice cream, ice cream. ice cream. ice cream. Ice cream. I'm an ice cream dealer. Yeah.
1: Three Dogs North. Is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal.
0: Like all our teachers,
1: just want us to think. Like, come on. Yeah, I'm done thinking. What the heck is this? That's why I joined the church. So I wouldn't have to think. Read the catechism and do what it says. <laughs> Wait, you tell me in the
0: Bible where it says the thing.
1: It's my <laughs> science book. It's my history book. It's my auto repair book. It's my <laughs> Jesus, Jesus book. <laughs> it's my Jesus book.
0: Well, doctor, you are telling me about when you were going through, was it UVA? Or was it Yale? You had that teacher who had sort of totally reinvented the way, not reinvented, but maybe rediscovered um, a cool way to understand or to think like they did in antiquity. So Have you just read all those classical works to sort
2: of train his brain? Yeah, this is Bill Westphal. who taught at the University of Virginia at the time, and now he teaches at Notre Dame. But he was an art historian in a typical program but uh, studied architecture of the Renaissance and Baroque periods. And instead of just saying, well, what do the textbooks say about the formal qualities of a building? He said, how do I read what an architect in the 16th century would read, or the 17th century? How do you read Aristotle? How do you read Plato? How do you know what Cicero is about? How do you know what a liberal education was in the time before the Enlightenment? Because we live in this world that doesn't really think about the deep meaning of things. And so he said, these people thought they were doing something important. How do I understand their brains? So he had us read things from before the Enlightenment. How about that? So it gave us this kind of pre-Enlightenment worldview when things had qualitative importance and not just quantitative importance. It wasn't just so many feet high and so many feet what does this thing actually mean? And I remember once he talked about the three different qual- qualities of number. And we tend to think, in the post-Enlightenment way, that number has a quantitative value, or maybe a mathematical value. So quantitative means threeness, fourness, twoness. Or you could say two apples, three apples, four apples. That would be mathematical. But he said in the, the pre-Enlightenment world, qualitative aspect of number was the most important. What is the essential ontological being nature of threeness, and how does that share the essential realities of the truth, of fourness, or fiveness? Can would actually it? tell
0: you this? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Like, what is fourness? Well, we didn't get the answer of fourness, but we started to think, if you're going to build a building, how do you build a building in a way that encapsulates the qualitative aspect of number, which itself shares in the qualitative aspect of God? And so how do you take godness and make it into material things in the world. And not just the history of style, not just a history of architects, clients, budgets, that kind of thing, or emotional responses.
1: To is people. the answer, make it a circle? It often <laughs> is make it a circle, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> circle and a square. Because
2: yeah. <laughs> the circle, you know, has no beginning and no end. It's eternal movement, and so it was an image of the Father. And then the square was an image of the sun because God, in begetting the sun, they say, was much more like multiplying himself rather than adding to himself. Because God couldn't add God plus one, God plus two, God plus five, right. God plus a million. God's full gift of Himself in begetting the, the Son is God times God, which would be God square. And so you have God who has no beginning, no end, and it's hmm. a circle, and then you have the Son
1: who is the square of God. So that's why the Orthodox churches are like a half dome on top of a box. Top <laughs> of the cube, right. Yeah. Right? Because you I get see. God times God times God,
2: which is Father, Son, Spirit, that's God cubed. So is, it, was is that God really? to the Third Power?
0: God to the Third Power, yeah. God to the Third Power. Wait, that's, that's a
1: good th- name for this podcast.
0: God to the Third Power. Dude, <laughs> no, we're stuck on three dogs north, okay? Why do you want to keep talking about It's got almost cats all the here? exact same do we keep letters. talking about cats up in here? Guys, yeah, see this. You're killing me, dude. I was vomiting in the middle so, of that stupid story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I could
2: see you crying.
1: Yeah, I was <laughs> weeping.
2: <laughs> um, He's wiping <quite> <laughs> tears from his eyes as we speak. Yeah.
1: So this dude what was his name?
2: Bill Westfall.
1: And uh, he was he now teaches at Notre Dame. He's been teaching there for fifteen years, so. Uh-huh. That is so
0: intense because like regardless if we like it or not, well, yeah, there's nothing that we can do about living in the world. In which we live now, which means that the way that we think. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing we can do about that. I mean, well, a lot of people, they do want to change that. I mean, we talked about the change, the unchangeable. Yeah, um, rocket cars. Changing, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone wants to fix the things that are unfixable. Everyone wants to change the things that are unchangeable. But, uh, just to think about what structures our world and how that's structured our brains to think a certain way. That was never
1: thought of before a certain time period, you know? Are you driving at the fact that we, I mean, this happens in my brain when I hear something like, God cubed. I think like, well, okay, but that's like a human, that's Mm -hmm. math, you know? Or geometry. No, I think of some stupid
0: debate I heard on
1: YouTube. I was like, the the God debate,
0: intellect squared or something like that, and have documents and, I don't know, Hitchens. Like, that's what I think of. That's what my brain is conditioned to think.
1: Well, we think of this big divide between nature and God, you know? Like, we're we're formed in the faith alone. And we grew up in this Protestant country. That basically, you know, the founding fathers were either deists or Protestants. Uh, one Catholic sign the Declaration of Independence. But, this country, you know, Puritan pilgrims, and very much like the faith alone, God is not understandable, you just do what he says, yeah. and don't question it.
0: Divine the command theory!
1: And we think of it, we think of God in very much the same way, I think, at least I do, innately. I have to battle against the tendency to say, when God's too real, when like a square can represent God and actually mediate his presence because of some idea... Like ooh, ideas and things in the world shouldn't get too close. Yeah, you know what I mean. Back away it's, quickly. It's right. like oil and water a little bit, you know. But Christ is, boom, God incarnate, walking around in a place on earth in time, and that's a scandal to us because it's too, it's it's too much of like a mixture or whatever, you know. I mean, this was obviously the debate. From the early church on, you know, how did that happen? How did how did God visit us?
0: But then you get a guy like Father De Gaulle who says, "Be very weary about how you talk about God," because there's it's impossible for us what else to. be wary, Mark? <laughs> Mark? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: weary, Mark? Mark? Weary means tired? What else? Mark, Mike.
0: Weary. Weary, weary means like weary. tread Weary means tired. Okay, be very wary. <laughs> weary. Weary. Be exhausted. No, be very wary. <laughs> Is it really wary? Yeah, W A R Y. Oh my god! Like beware. That'd be weird.
1: And let me tell you, this
0: podcast has begun to change my life. That's true. Starting with my vocabulary. <laughs> now um, you are yeah. No, it's just your pronunciation that's changed. So, yeah. He said, "Be wary of, of what." That's true. He said, "Be wary of how you how you discuss God or anything yeah. in relation to that." So. I'm not saying that he, can't, he is one of the people who can only talk about God negatively, so God is not this. And, mm-hmm. But his whole thing is, like, don't try and put God in... Don't try and exhaust God in right. one single thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that... Like, what would he say to, to what you just said of the idea and our understanding of God is, like, getting too close, where we don't want one to completely try and encapsulate God. Like, okay, this is...
2: Yeah, you can't put the infinite in finite category. Right. But at the same time, the finite participates in the infinite at a lesser degree. Mm-hmm. So you can either say, well, God's unknowable and forget it and walk away, or you can say, these smaller participations allow me to know something about God. You're yeah, just like a you know, if a sculptor takes a hunk of clay, and makes something out of it, it's something that the artist knows that goes into that clay. So there's something that God knows that goes into, into us. And so you learn about God by looking at the stuff God has made. And so geometry, things with harmony and mathematics and number, they, they were understood to be the ordering principles of the world that reveal the mind of God. And then you take those ordering principles and you apply them in the world. It's not so much that God is a cube, it's not that at all, but God has an order, and we figure out that order in some way, and then we apply that into, into matter. Take formless matter and turn it into matter that has shape, and harmony, you have to look at. The same Bill Westphal we were talking about before. I, I forgot. I never forgot this. He said, "If a beautiful object is beautiful, and you don't know it, then you and not it are deficient. <laughs> you and not it are deficient. So you put something in an object, and if somebody comes along, like a six-year-old at an art gallery, says, Mom, this is boring. Take me home.' There's nothing wrong with the art. It's the kid is deficient, right? And so we have to learn to look at mm. objects, and we, as artists, we have to put yeah. things in objects. If you say it's an emotional response, and that's it, and then you walk away. That's not enough. Would
0: really? you? So I heard a story once that a professional violinist—I don't know where this was—but he had a concert the night before that was sold out, like big money for the tickets, etc. They—he went out on a street corner the next day and played, and people just walked by him, like oh, yeah. like one kid tried to stop. I think he was Joshua Bumper. And anyway, would you say that? people are just in too much of a hurry that we zone it out? Or would you say that they actually are, not how they've been formed and lived, they just are able to know the beauty that's there?
2: Well, beauty is a quality of being, traditionally, and you mm-hmm. have to know what you're looking at to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But ideally, like our Mundelein Seminary campus is beautiful. Mm-hmm. An average person can come here and say, look at all those pretty buildings I mean, go home. You can send a postcard home to Grandma and she says, oh, look at that nice chapel. I, mean, that's I like the geese. <laughs> Where's Father
0: Barrett? <laughs> He's so famous. I, I want to give his face a hug. <laughs> and that's all they know, right?
2: Oh, it's pretty. But then, you know, you can see that our chapel's modeled on a Protestant meeting house in New England because Cardinal Mundelein wanted it to look like America. You know, to let our immigrants in Chicago learn what is. So, the more you know, the more you appreciate it. Then you can find all the details, all the molding, all the associations and the traditions of the last 2,000 years. So, you know, a beautiful thing should work in all those levels. And the more you know, the more you can enjoy it. Um, James McCurry, who's the architect you who know, designed our new chapel here, John Paul II Chapel, said a beautiful thing will reward you for close inspection. But the closer you get to it, the, the more you find there. Where a lot of our people just, you know, throw a bucket of paint out of canvas and You're supposed to say, oh, look at that motion, look at that uh, explosion of color. And then you get close to it, and it's still an explosion of color. There's nothing more that you find out by looking at it more closely. Where a really good piece of literature, a really good piece of music, will have illusions, layers of meaning, all kinds of things. That the more you know, the more you're studying.
0: So what about the whole, in my sociology class in college, they always brought up like the subjectivity, they're essentially driving away from the objectivity of the world. There's no objective beauty, it's whatever, you're conditioned to know, that whole thing. And the main example that they would always use was, what about the village who gets a beautiful carpet? And it's, you know, incredibly expensive, was handmade, has all these delicate, intricate, you know, detailed patterns, and the village gets it, and they put it on the top of their house, and use it as a roof to keep rain up, or whatever. You know, whatever nonsensical thing that they do with it. It doesn't make sense. It's not being applied for. So, they would use that as, there's no intrinsic beauty in that, it's only beauty that we perceive, because you've been conditioned to see the beauty. What would you say about that? Like, they have a beautiful painting, and they put it as a door, or something like that. you know, whatever. Well,
2: in classical aesthetics, there's the, in, in what you call realist aesthetics, objective aesthetics, Beauty's in the object, but it always requires a perceiver. So there's always that question, you know, does the tree fall in the forest and nobody here hear it make a sound? So there has to be a perceiver, but at the same time, it has to be a well-informed perceiver. So you might say, well, here's this beautiful picture of Jesus, and the Satanist might look at that and think it's the worst thing in the world. Right. Yeah. Objectively, it objectively doesn't change the reality of that painting. And so the perceiver has to have enough uh, in their mental toolkit to know what they're looking at and that doesn't change the reality of the object. And so there's always that interplay between object and
0: person. But what can we say, then, in terms of the objectivity of art and of beauty, that something would transcend cultures and transcend even maybe time? Is that even possible to have a beautiful object realized as beautiful by different cultures, different societies, different time periods?
2: I think so. I mean, every culture has its high art. Every culture has slang and every culture has elevated poetic language.
0: But is there one for all? And all for one?
2: <laughs> <Super friends. laughs> um, well, there's not one expression that's for all. Right. Because when you're dealing with things like transcendentals, when <clears> you're dealing with like platonic forms, there's the idea of the thing, and contained in that idea is an infinite number of possible manifestations of that So you take dogmas, which is excellent, right? How many kinds of dogs, how many breeds can there be? They keep inventing breeds. And then within each breed, how many examples of each dog can there be? So you can see 17 different border collies of 17 different German shepherds, or a million different German shepherds. And so there's always a conventional quality to it and an infinite number of expressions. But at the same time, dogness has a characteristic that recognizes recognize as dogness. And so beauty has a characteristic of beauty, which can have an infinite number of expressions. The problem is when you get a little bit narrow and you say, This is the best, everything else is deficient. Right. Your culture is deficient because you haven't produced themselves.
0: Now, I did enjoy Father Barron's point the other day when he was talking about being able to appreciate the beauty of each culture. He also said we have to be careful to not praise every culture as being perfect. Mm-hmm. Because every culture is gonna have their flaws. Right. You know? And you have to
1: be able to see that for what it is. That's right? like the, <laughs> to me... I love that point. The absolute archetype is the kid who just got back from studying abroad somewhere <laughs> else. Or a mission trip person. They're like, oh, I just got back from Spain? They don't eat dinner until like 10 o'clock. Their culture perfect, is perfect. you're a bunch things. of idiots for <laughs> Are you serious <laughs> with that McDonald's right now? Okay, I was <laughs> drinking Merlot at like 11 at night with papas. I think I know a little bit more about life than better, you do. Yeah. <laughs> but that, there's something <coughs> Stupid truly, as someone who's gone to other cultures there's something liberating about learning to live and move in another yeah. person's world. you know. And so you do have to kind of get back in the culture shock thing coming back to America. And, and you see more of the deficiencies of our own culture like especially like in Latin America where I've been the family is such a strong unit even to the point of extended family you know taking care of each other a lot more. People dying the home rather than, you know, moving them to be taken care of somewhere else. And just much more of a connection and loyalty that way. Um, less materialism, things like that. Uh, but at the same time, not everything in Latino culture is perfect. Yeah. You know? um, Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind, uh, he, he pointed mm-hmm. out this, basically like, that a culture is a cave. It's like Plato's cave, which we've talked about before. That it, it's, what you are saying, it's um, the light, the truth, the beauty, the, the transcendentals are shining behind us and we see the shadow, you know, the form, the, the manifestations of those things through all these infinite expressions in a culture, you know. So every culture has its way of, of communicating truth and beauty and goodness, but they're all approximations of it. None of them are perfect uh, cultures. There's no superculture that's, you know doesn't have any of the flaws of fallen humanity. Um, but we moderns, we tend to think that um, we will learn what the transcendentals actually are by going to different people's caves. You know, If a culture is the cave where you see the shadowy images of beauty, then if I go to Russia or China and see their, their way of expressing things, of truth, then now I'll know truth. But no, you just went to somebody else's cave and saw their approximations of it. You have to... Uh, get a connection with the source of all truth, God, who transcends all cultures. You know, God speaks to every single culture
2: um, in different ways. And before he was Pope, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote that the fact that there are different cultures is a fruit of the fall. So it's, it's a cause. Caused by the fall. So humanity, which should be one unified culture, got scattered. And so each culture kind of preserved one of the good facets of the gem or more than one. And so the the idea of making all nations into one again, and the the process of enculturation is to learn, what does this culture have that I don't have? What do I have that they don't have? Mm -hmm. How do you compare all of these things to the normative quality of Christ and then uh, purify and elevate what's weak in the culture and strengthen what's good in the culture? And hopefully you get the whole mystical body back in peace. Where we tend to think multiculturally, which is, we put every culture on parade, we do no analysis of how they compare to Christ, right. and put them all side by side and say they're all equally good. We do that all the time. Right. Yeah. That is
0: exactly what we do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a lot of deformed cultures out there. Yeah. I, mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it's always difficult to talk about Hitler and so on, but that was a highly developed culture, with architecture that supported the Third Reich, movies, literature, plays, speeches, but you wouldn't say, well, that culture is equal to anything else. Mm-hmm. Just because they had a highly developed sign system to go with it, it wasn't necessarily common. It was never held against the standard of Christ.
0: Because, and that's what it, everything else becomes relative to Christ. It's not... You don't measure the goodness of a culture or how advanced the culture is based off of any other characteristic, essentially, except for Christ. That's the... That's it. I love that, the cosmological argument that uh, Aquinas has of gradiency so it's like he God is the measure of all goodness and anything else is contingent upon God it's ultimately finally going to be measured by the goodness of God who is goodness all itself, goodness yeah. is goodness itself exactly so I think we get flawed we, we enter into a flaw of let's measure things based off of other things well what are we doing here why don't we measure the thing based off of goodness itself you
2: know, if you measure a culture by, you know, how many weapons they have to kill people, with, how many nations can they conquer, you just say, okay, would this be comparable to Christ? Would Christ come say, how many people can I kill with my children? Right. You know, how many people can I reconcile to the Father? Be the real and so people have a simplistic notion, oh, violence is bad, war is bad, and it's kind of the 60s, 50s notion of the anti-war. But sometimes I don't think they take it back to the foundational principles.
1: Yeah, it's funny when our, it's anachronism, but, you know, where we compare, or we look at some teaching of Christ, sell all you have and give it to the poor, or the way the acts of the, in the Acts of the Apostles, where they're living all in community and nothing was owned by anyone, and people will say, oh, they were communists. Right, yeah, because Jesus read Marx and decided that he was going to be, you know, a militant atheist, and all the things that go along with Marx, you know, that, that it's not, It's the tail wagging the dog, right? The cart before the horse. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the principle of everything that exists in the flesh, and so everything he says is the word of God. Um, Everything he does is the action of uh, all three persons of the Trinity. You know, none of them work independently. He says, "Everything I do, I do, you know, with the Father. I can't say anything independent of them." So it's God working in history, and then we we try to like apply our categories, like, oh, Jesus was doing what Marx said. <laughs> Would you say that about your own father, <laughs> like your father
2: works and gives you stuff, yeah, because you're a kid and you're poor. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dad's a Marxist. No, Dad loves you.
0: Yeah, he right. wants to
2: give you right. the fruit of his labor. Right. Are you ready?